This episode was brought to you by the great people on Patreon. Dave, Greg, Ryan, Dan, Ian Urza, Kevin, James, Ashley, Greg and Pearl, Raul, Joel, Brian, Amy, Ian West, and Trey. Stick around for an extended shout out at the end. Now on the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch War Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, and I am joined as always by my trusty sidekick. Jackson the son, the disgruntled burgomaster of this here podcast. <laughs> Monster. <laughs> we are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discussed. And we're going old school for this episode, going back to 1935 to talk about The Bride of Frankenstein or Frankenstein, if you will. To do this, we called in another big gun back for her third time, I believe. Barely Ashley. How are you, Ashley? I'm doing amazing. I do think it's my third time. I think so. This is awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, the IMDb synopsis for Bride of Frankenstein, I can't imagine there's anybody listening to this who hasn't seen it. I'm sure there's some younger people who just don't like black and white movies, but shame on you. You should check this out. But the IMDb synopsis reads... Mary Shelley reveals the main characters of her novel, Survive. Dr. Frankenstein, goaded by an even madder scientist, builds his monster a mate. Eh, not inaccurate. Um, So, Ashley, when did you first see Bride of Frankenstein? Um, I think I first saw this probably in my early 20s when I was searching out these types of things. Because I grew up on 80s horror. Right. And... It wasn't something that was like shown around my house, these types of films, but I really love black and white film and black and white TV shows. It's kind of my thing. And so I started seeking these out. I think that's about the time. Sweet. So Jackson, what about you? Uh, I don't remember. It's one of those ones where I felt like I've always seen it. Uh, I can see when the first time I reviewed it on Letterboxd, because that's really that's really the first time uh, you I really watch a lot of these movies. Like, I've seen them on TV or whatever, but the first time I really seek them out and do a Letterboxd review, it looks like, it looks like 2017, it says. That's a little later than I thought, but uh, <laughs> I guess 2017 was when I first saw Bride of Frankenstein for real. But um, it's one of those ones where... You can't escape it, right? You've seen the design of the lightning bolt hairstyle. Um, I mean, you've seen The Simpsons. <laughs> that's yeah. that's pretty much it. You got that, mm-hmm. that uh, beehive hairdo. But yeah, Bride of Frankenstein is just, it's, it is horror. I mean, it's one of those things where you think horror movies, you think this. And, and um, it, honestly, I mean, th- it goes back and forth, whether this is the better film or the first one. Um, I've always, you know, in the past, I've always thought that uh, Son of Frankenstein was superior, but I may change that opinion in this episode. I may, I may have some some oh, updates on that. So you need to change your opinion. We'll we'll um, get in we'll get into that. It'll be okay. interesting. Okay, I saw this very young, uh, probably when I was around four or five years old, in the seventies, uh, on Superhost, who was a monster host out of WUAB in Cleveland. And he would play classic monster movies every Saturday afternoon. And I hated to miss any of them. That's how I saw The Wolfman. That's how I saw Dracula. That's how I saw this. I saw so many, even King Kong, Godzilla. Saw all of them on those Saturday afternoons. And I've been hooked on horror ever since. So let's talk about the plot and the screenplay. We start, and for some reason, I just, I hadn't remembered it started this way. It took me a second. We start with a prologue yes. that introduces, you know, who was supposed to be Mary Shelley and her friends. 
And it's really used to kind of recap the original from 1931 before we learn that both the creature and Dr. Frankenstein survived the mayhem uh, at the windmill. What do we think of the prologue, Ashley? Um, so my thoughts on that were why, <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, uh, watching it again, I guess I watched it, uh, it was last night, and I was like, mm, this feels a little unnecessary. But back then, everything was so theatrical that it makes right. sense. Right. Because that was like pretty over the top in general. But yeah, I really feel like now that would not happen. Yeah. And what about you, Jackson? I'm, I'm on the same page, but go ahead. I love it. I love the intro of this movie. I, I think the framing device is, is kind of hilarious. It's so melodramatic. I mean, uh, you got Mary Shelley and Lord Byron, and they're all sitting by a fire and talking about stuff. I, 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 just, I just think it's an interesting choice to have Mary Shelley tell the tale herself, despite the movie like only loosely adapting the book story that she yes. wrote in real life. Yeah. It's like, and this is how my book goes. And it's like, no, Mary, that's not how your book goes. Did you forget? <laughs> this is how Universal's version goes. Um, I think that's a really interesting choice they're trying to bring some some uh authenticity to it it's kind of almost like what they did with bram stoker's dracula and mary shelley's frankenstein with like t- uh later on with robert de niro it's like they're trying to bring more authenticity by to it by bringing the author in but they're still pretty much just like new adaptations with with uh changes made to the source material but still i i love the intro i think it's so funny um, that she's scared of the blood. She just pr- pricked her finger, and she's scared of the blood, even though she wrote Frankenstein. And she's just <laughs> sitting there by the fire knitting uh, while everybody's, or I guess she's she's not knitting, she's cross-stitching or whatever, while uh, they're all, while Lord Byron is standing dramatically in front of the window with the lightning. I love it. It's, it is very 1935, but, all, you know, all the Universal movies pretty much had, a, like, a very theatrical opening. I mean, you have Dracula and Frankenstein. Didn't they both have, like, introductions warning you? that what you were about to get into was going to be real scary. Yeah. So it's just it's just kind of it's just kind of a sign of the times. I mean, I I think if if little kids were in there during 1935, they were going to they're getting pretty scared when she was like, "But this is even more bone-chilling. There are monsters in the air." And the kids were hiding in their theater seats. So I kind of like it. I don't know. It's it's very 1935, but it's fun. Yeah, I you know, it struck me when I was rewatching it today. I can see how people would say it's kind of odd it's redundant. But as Ashley said, if you could keep it in context, in 1935, you know, people had been four years since the original. Yeah. And so even if they had seen the original, they'd probably forgotten a lot about it. And and it's not like it's even without modern, somewhat modern precedent. I mean, a number of the Friday the 13th movies do that, where they yeah. recap. And so I, I, yeah, I didn't mind it, except, yeah, Lord Byron's a little over the top, but I'm, I'm not sure he and I would hang out. Um, <laughs> so you've got the father of the daughter killed accidentally in the 31 film. He goes to see, he wants to see the monster's body. Yeah. But this guy, Ashley, is having a bad week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he falls prey to the monster. And so then we're introduced to Dr. Pretorius, who in the original script was the Baron's professor, had introduced him to this idea and had been fired for being tied to him. Now, instead, he's kind of just kind of a crazed colleague with a less of a conscience has kind of been working along the same lines, wants to create a mate for the monster. 
What do we think of this character, this opening? Once we get past, you know, the prologue and we jump in, you know, with the monster killing the guy, and hmm. then we're introduced to Pretorius, who is the guy who's going to kind of kick the plot into high gear. What do you think, Ashley? So, first of all, in that opening sequence, the owl that's in the rubble. Yeah. I love that. I don't yeah. know why, but I just really focused in on that owl. And it was just like, what in the heck is happening here? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that family had a rough week there. Yes. <laughs> yes. They had a rough week. Yeah, yeah, I like the owl. I like, and we'll talk about that when we get through the plot. I do want to talk about like the set design and so forth with what James Well and, and his uh, crew did there, I think is pretty, pretty impressive. But uh, yeah. Jackson, what did you think of that opening scene? I love it. And yeah, I think that's so that's so funny that his daughter drowned and he's like, if I can see the monster's blackened bones, I can sleep at night. He walks up and immediately falls through the floor and just <laughs> falls, hits his head on the water wheel and then falls into the water and then Frankenstein attacks him. It's just such a it's it, and then and then Frankenstein climbs out. Uh, the the woman faints when when she sees him. It's just like that family's having a really crappy. And then oh I forgot she faints and she also falls into the, into yes. the hole and hits her head yeah. on the water wheel. <laughs> So these people are, ooh, it's, this is the most tragic family I think I've ever seen. This is like worse than hereditary, but, but um, <laughs> they are, they are not having a good time. But the thing that struck me the most upon this most recent rewatch, I watched Frankenstein and then I watched this. This movie is definitely like wackier and funnier than, than the first movie. I mean, you can tell that, that the focus had shifted from 31 to 35. The focus in, focus in what cinematic, you know, movie viewing audiences wanted was very different because like immediately the whole thing is funnier. I mean, like in the first movie we had Dwight Fry and this movie everybody's white fry <laughs> i mean we have yeah. the pyromaniac lady <laughs> the huff and puff you know burgomaster that i referenced in the beginning and of course the parents of the drone girl like comically fall into the underneath the windmill um so it's just like immediately everything is a little bit funnier um but honestly i think it, it it's balanced out because the the real emotion the sadness and like and the tragedy is also heightened so i i think this is just a much more emotional movie than the first one the first one is more cold and detached it's like prometheus it's like a like very clinical but the second one is more about human emotion but uh yeah definitely a fantastic opening picking right up and impressive that we pick right up from the start Four years later, like you said, it's it's very odd. It's sort of, sort of like how Train Spotting Two picks up right after the original. Yeah. You know, it came out like twenty years. <clears> or later. Halloween Two. Or Halloween yeah. Two, exactly. I I love that kind of stuff when they can recreate stuff from the beginning. Um, and yeah, and again about the, I, I just want to, I forgot to say this from the opening when we had that recap. Yeah, that makes total sense because like that was probably the first time they were seeing footage of the original Frankenstein in that recap in years. And people wanted to see some of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. They probably remembered it. So it serves a double purpose there. It's like, if you're watching Brad Frankenstein, you're kind of also watching Frankenstein too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a strange juxtaposition here though, because we get, because really, you know, on the one hand, you can argue that it's Dr. Pretorius, who's the real monster in, in this movie. And on the one hand, they try to show, you know, the creature in a sympathetic light, but then, you know, right from the opening, I mean, he just grabs that guy and just throws him under the water and just viciously kills him. Right. That I thought that was funny because the beginning is a pretty 
like brutal scenario for that time period because mm-hmm. even the lady falling in where it's funny to us now i think back then that would be really terrifying because mm-hmm. he hits her head on the windmill or whatever that is in there and like just her body is just floundering down yeah and i think then that would probably be really scary but now we're used to like michael myers just decimating someone's body Mm-hmm. So to us, that's like, oh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and it, what's funny is then the next time we see the monster after, you know, we're introduced to Pretorius and, and of course, Baron Frank is like, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. He's kind of saying, I've learned my lesson. But then the next time we see the monster, he's shown in a sympathetic light trying to save a girl from drowning. Yeah. You know, but is spotted, hunted, taken in chains to a dungeon. Well, after he drops her boulder on somebody's head but you know he, he's put in this dungeon he breaks the chains pounds the guards into pulp but then he wanders into a blind hermit's cottage attracted by the music and all is well until once again i'm starting to think Pretorius and hunters are the monsters in this movie the hunters find yeah. him again and the poor hermit you know it's just it goes back and forth between Frankenstein, you can argue, is in, it's in self-defense, but still, I mean, he is pretty vicious in how he goes about it. And then they try to show the monster in a sympathetic light, which is where I think the, that the movie Definitely. works really, really well. So what, what do you think of them making the monster so sympathetic, Ashley? So I was reading that um, when people first viewed this movie, they were kind of shocked by the fact that they would even do that because... Mm-hmm. In the first one, he was just the monster. And now right. they were confused by, wait, am I supposed to feel bad for this monster? Mm-hmm. Um, I like it because they're trying to bring a little bit of humanity into it. But, I mean, honestly, he's not human. But um, I think that's needed in this film because mm-hmm. of the ending. Yes. Oh, yeah. And we're going to spend some time talking about that ending. Uh, Jackson, what about you? you? You like that it's sympathetic, or would you rather him go old school? Well, it is odd. I, I do agree that it is a little odd that he starts out so vicious. I mean, in the first movie, he accidentally drowns that girl, and then yeah. her dad, he just murders him. So, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's like I guess it's an adult. I don't know what, what the problem is. But then, yeah, in the next scene, that woman falls into the into the water, and he, and he saves her. So it is it is kind of odd. I, I do also think it's odd that Mary Shelley is supposedly narrating all of this. And in her uh, original novel, Frankenstein is just terrifying. I mean, he really is a monster. He kills, like, all of Frankenstein's family. I mean, he's just, yeah. he's just vicious. Um, and intelligent, and, highly intelligent. And, and more intelligent. Yeah, he can talk like a normal person. He's more intelligent. He's more grotesque in, in the book. So it's just, it's really odd that they had Mary Shelley read this. On the other hand, I love the fact that the monster is is sympathetic in this movie. The, the movie definitely works best when the monster is sympathetic. And even when he's doing evil acts, like in the third act when he kidnaps Elizabeth, even when he's doing that, we understand why, because he he just wants somebody to love him. He just wants somebody like him, and he'll do whatever it takes to get to that point. Um, so we understand why he's working with Pretorius and why he's doing evil acts. And I definitely think that Pretorius is, is the villain of the movie. He is definitely mm-hmm. the antagonist. He he causes all this havoc. I mean, even though he is my, I'm, I'm going to say it right now, he's my favorite character of the movie. Mm-hmm. I love Dr. Pretorius. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> he is really the driving factor. I mean, he's he's a mastermind. Um, but uh, yeah, def- definitely really interesting dynamic with the monster. And I'm sure we'll talk about the 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 uh, blind man in the hut. And that's ripped right from the from the uh, book with a slightly different ending. I think his family comes back in, in the book, whereas hunters come in. One of the hunters, by the way, John Carradine, a young John, John Carradine, Carradine comes, yeah. comes into the hut and, and tells the old man that it's a monster. But um, yeah, I, I just love it. I love that the monster sympathetic it's like the king kong thing i mean yes technically king kong does kill a lot of people but he's just he it's not his fault that he's been brought into this world i mean with frankenstein literally he didn't ask to be born with king kong he didn't ask to be brought to america so you can't really blame them yeah i i really liked it um and we'll talk about boris karloff's performance in a minute and some of the problems he had with the script but i think he overcame it well but we've got the monster, you know, he finds Pretorius digging up corpses. Pretorius informs him. And I love that. I love that scene to you, what you're saying, Jackson. There's only one scene in this movie I don't really care for. That's where Pretorius is unveiling his little people in the jars. Ah, uh, I love that scene. Oh, you I did? Love, it's stupid, but I love it. Weird. I, for 1935, the visual effects are, are pretty good. And I, I think it's just fun. Yeah. yeah, but it is weird. I'm with Ashley. It's weird. Um, yeah, it's kind of like that. There are a couple things that are a little too silly for this movie. I think there's that. And then there's the pyromaniac lady who's like, their insides, the last ones to burn up. And it's like, OK, lady, calm down. <laughs> but um, there, there are a few moments that are a little less gothic horror and more like slapstick comedy. And that's one of them with the king trying to get to the queen, getting yeah. out of his yeah. jar and stuff. Yeah. But I kind of like it. It's like homunculi. You know, they're like he's growing little cultures of people. It's kind of gross. And I mean, later we see him grow a brain for uh, for the bride. But yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's fun. And, and him drinking gin, it's one of my only weaknesses. That's one of the reasons I love Dr. Pretorius. Is he's evil, but he's silly. You know, he, he knows how to have a good time. Oh, I love that scene when that's what was the scene I was going to bring up next. You got the monster finds Pretorius digging up corpses. And yeah. then he's like laughing at a skull and he's just like <laughs> downing whiskey or gin or whatever. And he and he looks crazed and drunk. Um, you know, and he informs the creature he's making a bride for him. And then so then, you know, Henry and and his wife are visited by Pretorius, who, you know, has the creature kidnap Elizabeth uh, to force him to assist in the creation. They create the bride. but She rejects him. Uh, the monster kind of shoes the Baron and his wife away. And and we'll talk more about this because you brought it up, Ashley, this ending where he's and it's not the first time he's cried, but it is it is powerful. Like when he's trying to just stroke yeah. his bride's hand and he thinks he's finally found another friend after these dumb <laughs> hunters rip the, you know, blind hermit from him. Then and so you go through all that and, you know, and he's he's like then the monster grabs the lever and he says that you go, you live. We belong dead. And just pow. I mean, it's a really powerful ending. And But before we get serious to talk about the ending, there's one thing that always cracks me up. Who has one lever self-destruct thing in their castle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Gilbert Gottfried, who is a huge Universal Horror fan, he's got a uh, life mask of Boris Karloff hanging in his apartment because he's such a huge fan. And but Gilbert does a bit on it. He says, you know, you know, it's like, who 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 designed this? Who's like now? Now, the last thing before we build your castle, do you want the self-destruct lever? You know, <laughs> and, and, and if so, whatever you do, don't put your jacket on it. You know, <laughs> yeah. it is I was wild. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's just kind of wild that um, 
that would just be there for them just in case. <laughs> I was wondering what it was because like Pretorius has that line. He's like, you'll blow us all to atoms. So is it like some kind of atomic energy thing? Like what is it actually? Is it literally just a self-destruct lever or is it like some kind of atom splitting thing? I have no I'm gonna idea. Go with it. I'm going to go with it's literally just a self-destruct lever. Because I think it's very 1935. It, but it's just, it's <laughs> yeah. just weird. Yeah. And so, but anyway, back to being serious. Ashley, what do we think about these scenes with Pretorius, the monster kidnapping, him building the bride, working with the creature, and then the ultimate rejection by the bride? Is it not heart-wrenching? It is. Um before I talk about that, I do want to yes. say something else. Go for it. Um, so when Henry is in the bed and he's asleep, I guess, um, and then he wakes up and Elizabeth comes in there and they just start talking about everything. Does it not to you feel like his recollection of building Frankenstein? He was basically just like, that was really cool and I want to do it again. Like I, it almost feels like they really didn't need to um, get Elizabeth to get him to do this again. He, it felt like he really enjoyed the power he had there. And then he's just playing coy, like, no, we can't do this. No, like they didn't need to kidnap her because I really feel like he was one step away from being like, you know what? Yeah, we should really do this again. I really enjoyed the way that felt. Oh, absolutely, because the way he yells, it's alive, it's alive, you know, he's excited. And he was, like, talking about how this was more than God, and he, I just felt like he wasn't over the fact that he could bring someone back to life. Oh, I agree. What do you think, Jackson? They didn't have to push him too far. I I agree. Jackson, what do you think? I think Dr. Pretorius probably could have offered him five bucks and a nickel and he would have done it. I don't think he needed to kidnap Elizabeth. He was really, I mean, when he visited Dr. Pretorius' lab and he was showing him these, these little tiny creatures he made, he is kind of like, his eyes are full of stars. He's like, wow, this is really cool. Ah, but I can't, you know, I told Elizabeth I wouldn't, you know, the old lady's on my back, that kind of thing. (laughs) He's like, I've learned my lesson. But yeah, I think he was one step away when he, when he says I won't see Dr. Pretorius and the Masons made off. But then Dr. Pretorius comes in. I was thinking in my head, I was like, he, he Dr. Pretorius could probably just take him by the hand, and and Dr. Frankenstein wouldn't <laughs> protest. But yeah. uh, yeah, he probably I, could I mean, just said I double dare you, and that would have been yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah, double dog dare you. And Frankenstein would have been like, I can't say no to a double dog dare. But I, yeah, I don't know. Dr. Pretorius has a a taste for melodrama, so he probably thought kidnapping Elizabeth would be the extra touch that he needed for a sinister plan. It's, it's just very classic villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, I, I like it. I don't know. It's, um, and I love that uh, the, the window opens as the monster comes through and Elizabeth says, Henry, is that you? Does Henry usually come through the window? Like, what is it? <laughs> What's going on here? Yes. It's, to me, I was, they could have done better there convincing me that he didn't want to live that type of life anymore. Yeah. Because I just felt like he was just waiting. He's like, I wish someone would come ask me if I could reanimate another person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, for 100%. me, it makes them, 
For me, it makes him a little bit more interesting. But also, yeah, he, Colin Clive's going to be crazy in every movie he's in. You can you can see there's a zeal in his eyes. He's he's ready to to make another monster. But <laughs> yeah. maybe if maybe if it had been communicated better that the only reason he isn't is because he wants to live with Elizabeth and she wouldn't approve. Like there's that element. But really, he he just seems to regret the bump on the head he got. <laughs> like that that seems to be the main driving force in him not immediately jumping right into the experiments with Doctor Pretorius. But Right. Yeah, it's 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 very simple. His character motivations aren't very complex. Right. Yeah, but I I I love these scenes and yeah yeah I agree. He's he's kind of crazy. He's kind of driven. We'll talk about Clive here in a minute and what else drove uh, Clive. Um, usually <laughs> a bottle of whiskey. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's his one weakness. It's I think Doctor Pretorius should have been played by Colin Clive. Honestly. Um, well, yes. Um, <laughs> And we'll talk about the cast in a second, but, you know, Karloff initially didn't really like the script. And the script, they went through apparently dozens of scripts that had all kinds of crazy stuff in it, going to the moon at one point. You know, Frankenstein creating a death ray to put it into wars that accidentally reanimates, you know, corpses, including his creature. I mean, they they wanted James Well to do a sequel immediately when the 31 film was such a hit and he put it off and put it off and he kept saying the scripts stink. I mean, every script they gave him, they just thought. And so he tried to do his best to play around with it, play around with it. He still got hit hard by the censors. But one of the things that he and Karloff went round and round about and, and Karloff was typically a very gentle man. Um, Everyone who worked with him just talked about how erudite and patient and kind he was. Um, but he did not like it that the creature spoke. Yes. Um, he Because it was going to alter the makeup, and he really liked the makeup. And uh, so, but regardless if he spoke or not, um, just every time he cries, it, like, pulled my heartstrings. Am I alone here, Ashley? No, it is really sad because he didn't ask to be here. And mm-hmm. when he is here, no one likes him. He doesn't understand his purpose. And it's, I don't know, it's its really telling because, like, for me personally, I have been through periods where, like, you're in this depression and you're like, why am I here? Why was I made? It feels like no one likes me or they don't understand me. Mm. And you can really relate to that as someone who may have been in like a dark depression in their life. Or, and like when I see that on film, I'm like, oh, that is so reflective of, I think, how many people feel that it just like grabs you. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Jackson? I yeah the, I I definitely was almost moved to tears. I mean there are two parts, and the first part is when he's in the in the, the shack with the old man. And the old man's like you must sleep now, and he's holding his hand. He's like thank you God for sending me a friend, mm-hmm. and Frankenstein just like looks up to the sky and cries a little bit like thank you for sending me a friend as well. He's just and and he gets so excited when he's like I can't see and you can't speak. Is that right? And the monster is like getting excited like yeah that's exactly right. You understand me. And it's just, mm-hmm. I definitely like that scene was so, and then, then even the more silly scenes where he's smoking a cigar and, and drinking wine with the old man, 
can. Uh, yeah. Bread, bread, good, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like even that, it's just so heartwarming to just, and I get the same thing, and this isn't a one-to-one comparison, don't get me wrong, but I get the same thing with Chunk and Floss and, and the Goonies. It's like <laughs> they understand each other. They're rejected by their family and by their friends, but they get each other, you know what I mean? And that mm-hmm. I got that there. And then he wants to regain that any way he can. He tries with the bride offering his hands in the very end, offering his hands and they're shaking. He's nervous. He's shaking and he says, friend. And he he asks her, he's real tentatively, slowly reaches out her hand. And as soon as he touches her, she screams in his face. And it's just, that really did almost move me to to tears. It's like, you feel so bad for him. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, why can't Kong just have, you know, the girl? (laughs) Like, it's that kind of thing. Like, realistically, it doesn't make any sense. You know, like, uh, it's like, she's still figuring herself out, right? She's this weird amalgamation of bodies and an artificial brain. Of course, she's not going to like him. But it is just, it is just really heartbreaking. And he, he, his acting is so great because, in the first movie, sure, he was this lumbering monster, but you could still see that little spark of life and humanity behind his eyes. But in this one, he definitely, even though uh, it was hotly contested that he would speak and and cry and be more sympathetic, I think it's I think it's just his best performance of his whole career because it is so relatable. And he's given a lot of good performances, especially in the Val Luton films in the '40s that he did. But yeah, I, I agree. He's he's just he's really moving, but then he can be really menacing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and speaking of that, the kill count was cut down. Um, the script that Whale originally approved had more than 20 deaths in it, but it was slashed, no pun intended, to 10. <laughs> um, but I still, overall, um, the screenplay, I have little things, little problems, they're kind of nitpicks, you know, really, with with uh, like the little people that Pretorius is growing, which is weird, you know, <laughs> and... But other than that, I really do think, especially for its time and given the fact that, you know, Universal didn't think much of these movies. They were almost a little embarrassed by them, but they they just kept pumping them out because they made so much money. Um, You know, and the fact that Karloff never got the respect he deserved. And I think that given all that, when you look at this and especially we'll talk about Whale in a minute and the cinematography and the set design and everything. But I think that the script itself with just a couple of nitpicks I think is a great script and it's a great plot. And it's, I think it's better than the original. And I love the original, but Ashley, what do you think? I agree. This is my favorite one. And, um, just comparing the two, I will go back to this one more than I go back to Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Jackson, what do you, what do you think? What, what do you think about the plot and the screenplay for this? Oh, I love the screenplay. I did. I did write in my in my notes that it was. It's possibly. I mean, it's really convol. It's kind of a convoluted pl- plot, especially if you haven't seen the first one. If you just watch this one, you're like, "What is going on?" <laughs> but I I do definitely think that the the script is is fantastic. I even wrote in my notes that I think it's it might be the best script that Universal pumped out that whole decade. Um, but uh, it's just. It, I, I honestly, like I said, I love the scene with the, the humunculi, which is, I guess, what people call those those little creatures he makes. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I heard of, and I, I, this is something, this is maybe all topic, I don't know. I heard of a planned darker ending that James Wales originally had in store where Henry and Elizabeth die in the final explosion. 
Um, I don't know if you've heard about this, but I I looked into it and actually rewatching the movie and the final theme where you see the the roof collapsing and the final explosion, you can mm-hmm. see Henry inside the lab. So I guess at least he was going oh. to die with Pretorius. Um, so that was interesting. But I, I think the script we got is, is good. I mean, um, like at the end of it, we're pretty much back where we were at the beginning of the first movie. You know, there's no more monsters. It's just Henry and Elizabeth. But we still feel like something, like, beautiful and, and horrible has been lost. You know, even though the monster was yeah. a monster, the world is a little bit darker without him. You know, it's a little bit less interesting. Um, so, yeah, and I, I just love I love that we can understand everybody. We can even understand the selfish uh, natures of Dr. Pretorius and Dr. Frankenstein, even though they're te- occasionally terrible people. And with Dr. Pretorius, always terrible people. Uh, it's it's just we can understand them. And even though they're, it's a little simple, you know, it's, it is a 1935 horror movie. It's not going to be, you know, something super complex. It's not a Shakespeare movie. But or a Shakespeare movie, I don't know. Maybe Shakespeare was around making Universal. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I don't know. Yeah, it is a fantastic screenplay. And I want to get into this. Okay, so for the longest time, Son of Frankenstein was my favorite of, of the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Because I love Basil Rathbone. I love, you know, the whole crime aspect right. to it. It's kind of like an investigator looking into it. An investigator with uh, a hook hand. or, or <laughs> it's, it's just a very a, a weird movie. Um, and coming out in 39, you know, uh, even four years after, it's so detached from the first movie. It just feels totally different. So I love that for a long time. It's, 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 it's the most film-like. I feel like it's not as campy as the other two. But with this one, on this most recent viewing, I did definitely connect with on this one the most. It, it does have the most raw human emotion. And by the end, I was, I was thinking, you know, this, this is my favorite of the trilogy. I love the first one. It's really, really simple. Um, it's a very simple adaptation of, of a more very complex book. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's, like I said, it's clinical, it's detached, it's very chiller. You know, it has a very uh, chilling feeling to it. Mm-hmm. This Bride of Frankenstein is a little bit more human. It's slightly more campy, like I said, with the comedic elements like the Burgomaster and whatever. Um, but uh, it definitely, I think it's the, it is the masterpiece of the trilogy. I mean, the other two are very much of their time, but this one does transcend a little bit. I mean, I watched several people like Neil Gaiman and Guillermo del Toro talking about how it affected them and how they related to it. Like, kind of like what Ashley was saying, if you've ever felt excluded, if you've ever felt like you don't have a place, you know, you can relate to the monster. Guillermo del Toro said that he felt a kindred spirit with the monster, even. He went yeah. that far, so... Um, definitely, definitely for that, I think it deserves applause. I can't argue with you. And so let's talk about the cast and we might as well start off with, uh, Karloff who, I mean, most of his life in Hollywood was in a lot of pain. He had arthritis, he had a bad back, and then you put all this makeup on him and he wore those heavy shoes to drag. And, and so he had a lot, you know, and he had that heavy, the heavy paint makeup, which was difficult to take off. And. Even though it was blue, bluish green, uh, Jack Pierce was has stated that the blue green was for the black and white. If it had been a colored movie, he would have made him just deathly pale white, like a corpse, and it wouldn't have been green. But he had to deal with that every day, and he's even though he didn't want to talk, I think he's given more here. And this is definitely one of my favorite Karloff performances, and I've seen him in a lot whether it's isle of the dead or body statues or black cat which is just a bonkers movie but i think he's fantastic in this what you say uh, ashley 
Oh, yeah, I totally agree. This is my favorite performance by him. And that's saying a lot because I really like his work. Yeah. And isn't he... uh, He does the voice of the Grinch, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Like, I really love that, too. So when I found that out, I think it made me love the Grinch even more. Yeah. I have a record of that so i'll play it like every christmas because it makes me think of frankenstein <laughs> that's awesome yeah that is awesome jackson what about what do you say about uh boris's performance i love boris karloff i mean and and pretty much in everything i've seen him there's some some more campy stuff uh that he's in but uh i love him in even his later movies like targets you know i love him in targets but also like the mummy he was the mummy Mm-hmm. Um, and Mario Bava's Black Sabbath. I'm a huge Giallo fan. He was in Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I've never seen him in a movie. There's definitely some where he's more phoning it in. I think there are some of the ones with Lugosi he did at some points where it's like he's just there for a day or whatever. But yeah. um, but def- the ones that he was invested in, he was really invested in. I mean, he gave it his all. And in Frankenstein, I mean, we can talk about the, the movie before, he carried uh, Colin Clive on his back despite, you know, his back problems. And that also yeah. gave him more back problems. So mm-hmm. he was really just dealt a, dealt a hard life sitting in the makeup chair for hours on end. Uh, and then, yeah, it's just, it, it is really rough. But in this movie, like I said, the, his, his emotional responses and, and his menacing moments, like when he's escaping the jail, he tears the door off, off the hinges. That's really scary. But uh, then again, he has the moments with the blind, the blind man and with the bride that are just so effective. Um, I don't think he cared that much about the character later on, like Son of Frankenstein. He didn't really care about it that much. But No, uh, he that's one of the reasons he moved over. If you listen to Secret History of Hollywood, there's they did a series on Val Luton, mm-hmm. who was kind of doing, you know, trying to compete with Universal with movies like The Leopard Man and Cat People and you know, and later Bedlam and Tower of London and all that kind of stuff and Ghost Ship. And he started, he did a lot of work with Karloff and Karloff jumped ship from Universal because he did think that the sequels and the, especially in the later thirties and forties just got to be hokey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love, I, and I love all those, but I agree yeah. with him. I mean, yeah, you can't, wrong. <laughs> you know, no. Cause I mean, yes, I will watch Frankenstein meets the Wolfman any day of the week. But right. is it anywhere near as good as Bride of Frankenstein? No, not in no. my opinion. No. And, and it's and it's sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and those don't really speak as much culturally as this one did. Mm-hmm. Because I think the significance of this movie um is really in that last part. Yeah. And it just cut because the bride is only in it for a little bit, mm-hmm. but the impact of what happened there is what made this movie iconic because she broke the rules. Yeah, it's, I I agree. And it's just, yeah, the ending, we can't say this enough. Guys, if you have listeners, if you haven't seen it, it sticks the landing. Yeah. And few movies do that with the ending, but this one did. And I think that's why I love this one so much because I look at her as being this symbol of, like women at the time because we're Mm -hmm. because this is a time period where we're starting to get our voice right and so to me she kind of symbolizes that because she breaks the rules she's she rejects this man that's not what we did back then like Mm -hmm. we should have just been happy that there was a man there that wanted us so she's breaking the rule there 
right off the bat. So not only is we're seeing, like, we're trying to be sympathetic to this monster, but we also have this other thing in place where we are like, okay, yeah, she should not have to accept this life. But yeah. back then she was expected to. They, they're like, we made this woman for you. And so it's really like the ending is just so like culturally relevant of the time. And the when we get into the later movies, they're just silly. Like we're getting starting to get into like the 1950s silliness yeah. of horror. But this, like, I feel like it really said something. Yeah. And just what was it? I believe it's within 10 years of women finally getting, or 15 right. years within women getting the right to vote. Yeah, so I feel like this was really, really saying something with the time that she was on screen. Because mm -hmm. it was like, we've rejected this idea that this woman just has to be okay with the man who chose her. Mm. She could Good look point. at him and she could be like, oh, no, this is not what I want. Right. And like, we were she not looks like she kind of likes Dr. Frankenstein is who she's kind of more attracted <laughs> yeah. to. yeah. So it's like she had a choice and a voice there yep. and it didn't end well for her, which a lot of times for women, it doesn't. Right. If we reject someone, if we look at statistics, it really doesn't end well for us a lot. No. So, and, I mean, as, yep. And as somebody who was married to a woman who used to have a stalker, I hear what you're saying. I, and and mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it yeah. can be scary. And that's a, that's another reason why I really like this, because. In the last, what, five minutes, mm -hmm. we're encapsulating, like, the struggle of just women in general. Mm -hmm. Like, we, she gets her voice and she says no, but then she dies because of it. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I've been in situations where I did not want to be with someone and it was very hard and creepy to tell them no, you know, yeah. I mean, We've not come very far, but I feel like this film at the time was so like edgy because of that. I think that's a I think that's a, a legit and profound insight into it. Jackson, what do you say? Yeah, I definitely and and the thing is, it's like it's a de, it's a demented arranged marriage. Essentially, she is created yeah. for that yeah. very purpose. Yeah. It's so it is it is really creepy and it's it's weird to think like. That's She's all they're big. thinking. These two guys, that's the, all yeah. they're thinking at all yeah. is one, the challenge and two, okay, here you go. This is your whole purpose is to be a bride. That's it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It is, no it is idea so... that she would be like, um, no, I don't want him. <laughs> they didn't even consider that. I mean, and Dr. Torres is probably thinking I grew her brain, you know, she'll do whatever I say, but yeah. that's not, that's not how it works. And, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it it is it is so weird because like she she had been on the earth for less than a minute and they already expect her and even before she's made they're talking about her and the first thing that they refer to her as is the monster's mate you know not yeah. another monster she's the monster's mate <laughs> that's that's like her entire purpose so it is it, I think that is there's definitely commentary on that they they weren't oblivious to this uh, in in 1935 they knew what they were doing creating yeah us. I definitely don't think James Well was oblivious to it because he was no. a sharp sharp guy and he enjoyed doing things like that in fact we'll talk about him here in a minute how his career came to a tragic end because of uh, it's just bizarre but anyway um what do we think of Clive Cussler as Doctor Frankenstein Ashley it's almost like the 
just traditional mad scientist type of thing. Mm-hmm. And the crazed look in his eyes at all times that I like about it. But I feel like there was something more going on there with him personally. Yeah, it, he struck me, and 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 Jackson, jump in here whenever you want. But you know, he he struck me as. I, I think you're absolutely right, Ashley. I think your point is is dead on that he doesn't completely regret what he did. He'd really like to give it another shot. He doesn't think that he's yeah. finished. But no, at the no. same time, he's conflicted because he's like, he doesn't want to lose Elizabeth. And I think that, you know, if Elizabeth turned to him at any time and said, oh, honey, go, go do your silly mad scientist thing, he would have just mm-hmm. like, I mean, before she finished her sentence, he would have been like sprinting down the hallway to his lab. Yes, and that's what's, to me, more dangerous than a scientist who is outspokenly crazy. Like, yeah. Dr. Pretorius was a lunatic, but <laughs> Frankenstein had some sense about him, and that made you less, um, what is the word I'm looking for, suspicious yeah. of him. And I feel like those are the people that are more dangerous than the ones who are just outright like, hey, I grew tiny people in a jar. You want to look at it? <laughs> yeah, if somebody is ranting and raving on the street, you kind of have a <laughs> heads up that maybe you want to be a little yeah. cautious around them. But, you know, look at what Ted Bundy could get away with. Right. That's the scarier ones. Yeah. 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 Jackson, what did you think of Clive Cussler as Dr. Frankenstein? If Clive Cussler. Uh, Cuffler, the guy who wrote Raise the Titanic. Are you thinking of Colin Clive? Oh, Colin Clive. Is that Colin Clive? Clive? Yeah, Clive Cuff, uh, Cuffler. I can't even say his name. Well, the guy who wrote Sahara. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not even looking at my notes right now. Go ahead. So, um, two famous. There aren't that many famous Clives, though, so it makes sense. But um, anyways, yeah, I, I love him in this movie. And he is he really? definitely... Yeah, I mean, I, well, I like. I don't. Don't get me wrong. I don't mind him. I'm not saying that I think he's bad or anything. Right. Especially for 1935, he is doing that kind of thing that a lot of actors early on in the 20s and 30s in film did, because they're coming from, um, they're coming from, uh, Broadway or theater or whatever, yeah. and they're kind okay. of trained to kind of uh, uh, emote and speak in a way that the people in the cheap seats can kind of see it. Yes, yeah. and I feel like that's what he did. Yeah, that that's how he, he struck me. Now, that's fine because I understand this period, you know, and you get that a lot. So I don't have a problem with that. I don't think he's he's bad. But I do think that he really, compared to what Karloff is doing, I don't think there's any comparison. Oh, no way. No. no. I think you... that he had a huge problem with alcoholism. And it was way worse for this film than the first. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Um, In fact, I've got a note here somewhere that, you know, it's amazing this film turned out as brilliantly as it did because both Colin Clive and the director of photography had to be driven to the set every morning because they were already drunk after breakfast. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't drive. They couldn't be, you know, if they had to have him at the set at 10 a.m., they couldn't trust them to even show up. And so they had to have a driver for for both of them. And James Well apparently said they asked him and he said, well, you know, that Colin was a bit of a handful at times when he was in his cups. But he said, my director of photography worked pretty well drunk. <laughs> so I didn't complain. Um, I think but, you can tell that by the, his performance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
I was reading here right now, actually, it says two years after this film, he died of tuberculosis and chronic alcoholism. Oh, goodness. His ashes laid unclaimed in a basement of a Los Angeles funeral parlor for 40 years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's, and they said in 1978, someone claimed him and scattered his ashes at sea. So not only was he alienating his colleagues, but it sounds like his personal life as well. Oh, yeah. Um, He's only 37. I just looked that up. Man. That's sad. That is really, really sad. Um, Wow. Well, rest in peace, sir. Hope you found peace. Um, But yeah, I don't bind him. I, I, you know, and, and uh, God bless his heart. It's it's a, it's a horrible life. Um, I'm looking Mm -hmm. out Wikipedia and according to Wikipedia, you know, he was estranged from his wife. There were rumors he was bisexual and, and so, you know, James Well was openly gay, but, you know, he, you know, the studio system didn't seem to mind that. But as an actor, um, I've read a lot about how people had to hide that like crazy. You know, well, yeah. they had to hide it even into the 80s and 90s. So, um, right. oh, man, that's terrible. But Jackson, do you have anything else to say on Colin Clive? Yeah, so he de- he definitely is well you were talking about how he's a broadway actor and he was in i mean he was in a play in 1935 he was in libel but um he definitely in the first movie i think more does that with his like raving like lunatic ramblings you know the the whole it's alive now i know what yeah. it truly feels like to be god's kind of uh speech he's more emoting for the the back seats there in this movie, he definitely is more reserved. But again, yeah, I think that's because he was drunk. Um, and uh, I, was, I was reading on, on Wikipedia. I was also on Wikipedia. And it says, um, uh, Forrest J. Ackerman recalled visiting Clive, Clive's body. I actually saw him in death, lying in a bed at a mortuary where it was possible for the public to view his body. He looked remarkably as he had when lying in bed in The Bride of Frankenstein. So um, okay. that's pretty sad. So <laughs> if you went to go see his funeral... You you kind of yeah. kind of get the same image, but also Corey Ackerman also, was a was a strange guy. I mean, so but anyway, yeah, he was. A, I also, John I Landis also, tells stories about him, but go ahead. I also read that one of the pallbearers at Conclave's uh, funeral was Peter Lorre, so that's pretty cool. But um, yeah, definitely he he definitely had a problem. I, I I'm also reading that he was uh, he had to be sat up for his wide shot sometimes because he was blackout drunk. But um, yeah, I I. I enjoy his performance in, in both these movies. Um, no matter what scene he's in, he's kind of the straight man. He's kind of the grounded one. I mean, we have Elizabeth viewing, seeing the Grim Reaper coming after uh, Henry. She's like screaming about <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Pretorius. Dr. Pretorius is, you know, Dr. Pretorius. And so we kind of need uh, Colin Clive there to kind of balance it out because even though yeah. he was the crazy one, him and Dwight Fry were kind of bouncing off the walls in the first movie. And this one, he is definitely more reserved. And I kind of like that. Um, I definitely think that he was weaker uh, than Karloff. And and um, it's just, it's just, it is tragic, but I'm, I'm glad he got to at least be included in what, what's considered like a classic genre defining movie. Two of them, actually. So he definitely has a legacy. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got also we've got Ernest Thesiger as Pretorius. Um, you know, I already, I already gave my opinion. I think he's great. He usually plays some kind of, you know, um, eccentric or and according to Elsa Lanchester, he was pretty eccentric in real life, though. Valerie Hobson said he was actually a very lovely person. 
um, that he was a gentleman. He had been badly wounded in World War II fighting for the British, um, had to be shipped back to, to London, to, and he barely survived. Um, but I think he's great as Pretorius. Anything else we want to say about Ernest Thesiger as Pretorius? Ashley? Um, no, I just thought he did really well with what he had mm -hmm. there. Yeah, and, and I love the way he shot, which we'll get to in a minute. But yes. uh, yeah, he I shot don't know if so well. You guys well. saw my post last night about I took a picture of him like sitting behind the candles and the skull, and I was like, "This is how I'm doing business from now on." <laughs> like yeah. I loved that the aesthetic of him just behind the dripping candles and the skull in his dark castle or laboratory or whatever it was. it was okay so i know you work you know you're you work in the field of science ashley are you becoming a mad scientist is that why is this is where this is going <laughs> maybe no <laughs> see i'm the one that prevents that from happening oh, that's my okay. job i am the one looking out for people and like we're not going to be doing any of this stuff in our labs okay <laughs> you're going to make sure that that uh that uh, down south, we don't have another Wuhan. Is that what you're saying? We're not, <laughs> we're not playing around with this stuff. Basically why I'm there. Yeah, Thank this God. Is why this whole thing is so frustrating. <laughs> this whole COVID thing and all these conspiracies. And I'm just like, that's not how it works. I know. But hey, look. Hey, Jackson, if we both live to be a long, you know, live a long life, it's because Ashley prevented the stand from happening. Yes. That's why. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> if it, if, if it happens, it will happen in the South. Let's be honest. Like, that's where the outbreak is going to begin. It, yes. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> funny because anytime someone watches Reanimator, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to tell you all the things that are wrong with what's happening here, <laughs> because I know all about compliance law, and they are breaking every one of these human subject research laws, and here's oh, why this would not happen. That's funny. <laughs> that is funny. Well, we've got to talk about, we mentioned, Jackson, you brought up John Carradine, Walter Brennan, you got Dwight Fry back, and of course, oh man, him as Renfield just creeped me out as a kid, but We've got Elsa Lanchester as both Mary Shelley and the bride. And so, Ashley, what did you think of Elsa Lanchester in this? Oh, I love her. Yeah. I have her tattooed on my leg. Really? As, as the bride. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how much I love this movie and her. Oh, I have that is so pictures cool. of her on my wall as the bride, too. That's and awful. I have a lot that are not on my wall because my friends will buy them for me if they see them. Like if they see a cool Bride of Frankenstein print, awful. they buy it for me. So I have like all these in my closet I'm looking for frames for. That's fantastic. So, <laughs> oh man, Jackson, what about you? I think she's fantastic. Yeah, she's she's definitely, I mean, again, she she is the most iconic image in maybe in yeah. horror history, other than the monster himself with like the, the with the lightning, the uh, bolts out of his neck. Other than that, maybe, you know, Bride of Frankenstein might be the most iconic image. And I was wondering in my notes, I wonder if they ca if they cast Elsa Lanchester as Mary Shelley so they didn't have to credit her as a, as a bride. Because <laughs> they did the same thing in this movie with that they did with the monster in the first movie where it's like the monster dot 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 question mark. And yeah, I, I wonder if they, think if they, they did. I actually yeah. think they did. Yeah. They're like, uh, we need 
we legally need to put her in the credits. Uh, can you play Mary Shelley too? And she's like, I'll take another paycheck. That's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think she does a fantastic job. And I have already professed my love for the intro and how melodramatic it is. And I think she's great in that. Um, but uh, and honestly, I would lo- I would like to see a cut uh where where mary shelley narrates the whole thing i don't want that to be the the i don't want them to george lucas it okay and add a narration but i'd love to see a cut where elsa lanchester narrated i wonder if they ever got her to do that i'm sure that's in a vault somewhere um but well um, you know what this was something i found we we can talk more about this if you want when we get to the technical aspects here in a second but um there there is footage missing from this film Mm -hmm. i believe Um, film historian scott mcqueen has stated that you know, like, for example, the original opening score, once the prologue ends and we jump in with the monster, it's five and a half minutes, but there are only three and a half minutes of film. But the guy composed it to the the first print. Yeah. And nobody knows where it's at. There I'm are minutes missing it. from this movie. I know. It's just, it's just gone. It's just, it's shameful how the Hollywood studios have treated stuff like this. I mean... There's there's stuff that we'll never find from the Friday 13th movies because Paramount just tossed them aside. You know, mm-hmm. same thing here with Universal. I mean, it's just, ah, uh, they just, they don't, you know, once something is, especially these days, after the opening weekend, they could just care less. They could mm-hmm. just care less no matter how good the film is. And it's that just is so sad. sad. It is sad. Because there's people like us who absolutely love this type of thing and, like, Oh my God, that would be insane to see the footage for this that was cut. Mm-hmm. Release the whales cut. That's what, that's what I want. Release. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's what I want. And and yeah, I think this. It's it's so tragic because yeah, knowing Universal, they probably used it to build a campfire. I mean, they just yeah, like you said, they didn't care. We've seen this so many times. I mean, Universal will even do that with like sets, like classic sets that have been yes. up, like Phantom of the Opera or whatever, up for hundreds of years. They're like, this could be the Legally Blonde set. You know what I mean? They'll they'll just they'll just do and whatever. They just tear it down and junk it. It's like, why would you not? You're a company. Why would you not at least auction that off? I mean, that doesn't yeah. make any sense. They don't care. They're they're like whatever. And uh, and yet knowing back then how flammable film was again yeah that probably burst into flames and no and at the time nobody oh, missed it but i would love to see that that reinstated um and honestly i noticed on my blu-ray i was watching it on blu-ray there were a couple parts where they splice in i'm wondering if they found like better quality footage than they had had before and they splice it in because you can see the film quality kind of change in certain parts so mm-hmm. uh, yeah. they did find better prints of existing scenes so i'm wondering if they'll ever find any print of of those those long lost scenes i mean we've seen that happen with like like you're talking about the Friday the 13th movies, there are some that they found gore footage that was thought lost just because somebody had it in their attic. You know, they just had it in their house. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Yeah, one of the guys who counting... worked on the special effects had VHS copies of it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not so just they... counting the, the possibility. Well, let's hope, but it's been a while. Um, so we've got, I mean, the cast, with the exception of, you know, um, Ernest Thessinger, who plays... You know, Pretorius, uh, Colin Clive as Dr. Frankenstein to a degree. And the creature, we just because, and we, we have to say, folks, you haven't seen this. This is only an hour and 15 minutes. I mean, this is a quick mm-hmm. movie. And and so we're given a lot of characters, but the characters kind of passed over. Like Valerie Hobson as Elizabeth, I think she's, she's good too. But with the exception of that harbinger of doom kind of thing, she's not given a lot to do, unfortunately. No, she's just there. I think she's just there because if she wasn't there, the movie would just be 
hey, do you want to make a bride? And then break it down and be like, I do. Let's do it right now. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Anybody disagrees with us uh, out there, come at me, bro. Because I'm telling you, Ashley's right. He was re- he was raring to go. He did not want to quit his work. He didn't want to be, you know, thrown off a windmill again. But he was he was ready to go. Um, so this was directed by the great James Well, um, who had, of course done the original and the Invisible Man. An amazing director who, unfortunately, his career was cut short. He retired in his 50s. And though he was openly gay, that had nothing to do with it. Here's what happened. He made a film called The Road Back, which is a drama. And he made it in 1937. And this is a time, of course, when the Nazis are ruling Germany. Mm-hmm. And he did not depict Germans in a very positive light. And so the Nazi party, when they received a print, because the Nazi party demanded that any film shown in Germany, which was a lucrative film market for Hollywood, had to be screened first by the government. And so the Nazis screened it. They didn't like it. Um, They argued with Hollywood. James Whale took a load of crap because the studios were afraid of Nazis. That is ridiculous. So... His contract ran out in 1941. He retired. He said, I'm not putting up with this crap anymore. He was offered jobs throughout the 50s, and he was just like, nope, nope, I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm done. You guys can't stand up to the Nazis. Screw you. And so he just walked out on the business, and he was careful with his money. He had put it back, and so he was able just to comfortably retire, but he left. But I think he's a brilliant director. What do you think, Ashley? I agree. That is, I did not know that, but... That makes me respect him a lot more, that he's willing to walk away from something for his beliefs. That yeah. I, and, but it makes me sad because I don't know what he could have done in, you know, the years where he was still able to direct. What could we have seen from him? Yeah, because he's such an incredible visual artist. I mean, there yeah. are shots in here that are just mind-blowing, especially for 1935. And yes. even though he gave his director of photography a lot of credit, the, the the DP even said, no, he would walk in and say, this is the shot. He would show him, I want this exactly. I want this, this, that. He said he gave me a lot of credit, but all I was doing was lighting. He was mm-hmm. telling me what to shoot. And I just think it's it's incredible. And it's, yeah, it's really sad. And, and of course, Hollywood now, you know, is kowtowing to China, which is one of the top human rights abusers in the world. And and yeah. so Hollywood is still going at it, you know. We're still doing it. And it's We're still doing it. Bad. It's terrible. And so, uh, anyway, Jackson, you're the future director. You're going off to film school this week. What do you think of Mr. Whale? Well, I think the directing in this film is is brilliant. And I love Frankenstein. I love The Invisible Man um, but uh, and The Old Dark House. But but I, I love this movie. I love the way it's shot. It looks, you know, watching it on Blu-ray, I imagine it's what it looked like opening day in 1935. It looks mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Frankenstein Manor just looks so fantastic. I mean, the windows and the, the lighting with the candle lighting in the, in the living room when the maid is walking to open the door. 
it's just it is it is awesome awesomely shot and uh knowing that backstory about james whale is just fantastic he he's, he seems like an awesome guy um but yeah I, I saw a thing recently it was like a parody thing of, of the hollywood editor who edits stuff for china and it was like they cut out all the all the stuff that'd be controversial for chinese people and advertise that in america pretending to be diverse which is <laughs> seems like pretty much what they're doing back then it's like <laughs> It's, yeah. yeah, it's crazy that they would cater to the Nazis uh, back in the 30s. But um, yeah, I, I love that. That's 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 that, that's somebody coming out on top, even though they you have to. Came out yeah, on top I mean, give it up. I mean, not only is he supremely talented, not only was he very brave to be openly gay in the 30s in America. Um, yeah. But on top of that, the fact that he was like, wait a minute, you're going to kowtow to Nazis, well then, screw you. I don't want anything to do with you or your business. So good on you, man. A brave guy, a brilliant man. But Ashley, I'm with you. If if Hollywood had shown any kind of spine, what else could we have seen from the man? I know, and uh, Jackson just mentioned the old dark house. I yeah. forgot that that was his. I yeah. love that film. Yeah. All of his films, The Invisible Man, I can just put them on and they just, I don't know, it's like a calming effect for me because the cinematography is so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. And then, so let's talk about any other technical aspects we want to talk about. I've already said I love the set design here. It is just incredible. The artistic direction, the production design, Pretorius's lab, the, the forest, which is obviously a matte painting, but looks just yeah. It just looks otherworldly. It looks fantastic. The music is great. Um, you know, Whale wasn't completely happy with the editing. There are a few scenes where he really wanted it re-edited and Universal refused. Um, there's one scene where you can see the dialogue cuts, but Pretorius's mouth is still moving. And because James Wells, James Well, that irritated him. Yeah, you know, he yeah. just wanted him to go back and, and fix that, and they wouldn't do it. Um but other than that, I thought the technical aspects, this is just a, watching it today on Blu-ray, I mean, it's just a beautiful looking film. Everything from the costumes to every, it's just gorgeous, isn't it, Ashley? Don't you think so? Oh, yeah. And I had the Blu-ray. I actually still have the Blu-ray box. But the sad thing is, I was watching this movie the day before I got my house burglarized oh my and it gosh was, it was in my playstation um oh, this was no. several years ago yeah so i have the box i just don't have the blu-ray anymore but it was one of my favorites to watch they took it in my playstation i was like well i really hope they get a little culture from this oh. wherever it is now bless your heart oh my gosh <laughs> yeah that's oh man! One of that the things sucks. that I attribute to this film is like, oh crap, they stole my film. That I need to replace sucks. it, but yeah, I was often joke like, I really hope that someone somewhere has gotten a little bit better taste of film because they <laughs> took my Roger Frankenstein Blu-ray. <laughs> I would, I would hope so, but that sucks. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh, Jackson. All right, buddy. Um, what do you think of everything here? Set design, edit, music, go for it. 
I love, well, first of all, set design. I mean, it seems like James Well always works with the best set design. I mean, we talk yeah. about the old Dark House, talk about ambience. And then the Invisible Man, the inn, and the Invisible Man seems so cozy. I mean, you got the snow outside, but it's so cozy inside, that wood paneling. Yeah. And, and yeah, in this, in this uh, movie, too, I mean, that crypt that, he's, that Dr. Pretorius is down in there with, with the bones, it's so, like, you can, you can imagine yourself down there. Or the windmill, I mean, it feels so real. Um, even if when, when Frankenstein's on the map painting, I mean, he's, he's, the monster is, is out in the forest and the woman falls in the water and that little thing with the, with the goats and the sheep and that little pool and everything and the map painting behind it, that's just like yeah. the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It looks unreal. Yeah. Um, yeah. it looks like, like fantasy. It looks like Lord of the Rings out there. Um, and when he's up on that bluff, throwing the boulder down on the people surrounded and, and then he's hoisted up on, onto the, basically hoisted up on a cross and then thrown into the, the pile of hay it's just such so cool visualize so yeah the set design and and the um the wardrobe on this movie are just fantastic um and makeup and, and special effects i mean frankenstein's skin slowly gets more and more like it, it slowly decays and it, he burns himself so it's all yeah. blistered and boiled yeah. so really and from the first movie to the second i mean he was he was pretty messed up in the first movie but in the second movie after that fall into the bottom of the windmill and the, the windmill being on fire i mean his hair is like burnt back off his scalp a little bit more revealing the bolts and his and his mm -hmm. um his skull better so i think it's just it's just genius the technical aspects the editing yes jack is pierce much, right the great yes. jack pierce doing the jack makeup. pierce did and he he devoted so much time to the first movie and the second movie but i think he really did uh perfect it with it with the um the the second movie and, and although i love the look of of frankenstein's monster and Son of Frankenstein when he's got like the wool sweater on. I really love that look. That's like when I think Frankenstein, I think that with like the wool thing. Mm -hmm. um, probably because Rob Zombie uses footage of Son of Frankenstein a lot and stuff. But um, but yeah, I, I definitely I love the way every just the editing. Yes, is very of its time. I did notice that that weird uh, dubbing, the weird audio thing with Dr. Pretorius. Um, and it does feel like like some scenes are really trimmed down because yeah they did they cut out ten kills and like I said two of those were were possibly Henry Frankenstein and Elizabeth so yeah uh, yeah yeah but but still I, I love it and the soundtrack uh, is as good as ever um, it's it's maybe maybe not as um, as iconic to me as like that swan song the uh, what is that the Nutcracker from Dracula whatever that mm -hmm. is. Um, yeah. from the beginning maybe not as memorable as that but it does it helps convey the emotions really well especially like i said in the scenes where boris karloff is really emoting the score really really highlights that so yeah t technically this movie is, is a marvel and yeah like you said 75 minutes not much of, a, of an investment um but it definitely it's it's just like a really short dose of serotonin i yeah. mean it's reliable it's short it's all yeah. killer no filler and yeah i just i, I love it I, I agree so any other notes you guys have before we we've got some comments and questions on the Facebook page to cover, and then we can go to our ratings and recommendations. Ashley, anything else you want to cover on the Bride of Frankenstein? Um, so I thought something was funny, and that I wanted to talk about. So mm -hmm. <laughs> when Frankenstein is down there and he's like, "How do I know Elizabeth is alive?" or whatever, and um, Pretorius is like. Here, you will speak to her through this electrical device, which is a phone. But, <laughs> but it's funny because I have an eight-year-old daughter who would look at that phone and probably not know what it is. 
Yes. So we've circled back around to that being like a weird thing now. Right. Like I recognize that was a phone. She wouldn't. So now it's like she'd probably be watching that being like, what is that electrical device? Exactly. I saw somebody tweet uh, out that um, young people today don't understand, will not understand when they watch TV shows or movies that show the flipping of calendar to show the passage <laughs> of time. Yes. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I know. It's like, that was 1935, so we've come full circle now to where people don't know what telephones were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that was yeah. a funny observation. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Jackson, have you ever had a landline? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't oh think so. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I mean, we've, like, we used to have a home phone, but that, but I don't think when a landline. you were little, but yeah, yeah you've never and, had, like, a landline in your room or anything. No, and, and, um, yeah, I've never had that thing where it's, like, uh, it's in movies, like, in Twin Peaks I was watching recently, um, Donna picks up the phone, and she's like, Dad, you can hang up the phone now, and it's like, I've never had that, where, like, you can listen in on them talking on the phone, because pretty much everybody, I've started to notice when I felt, like, an internet form to like make a new account on something they don't ask you for your home phone number anymore they just ask no. you for your mobile phone number um so de definitely shifting away from that i think it probably for the better i mean it's as fun as that is the idea of having a landline i don't know the there is something to be said that um because i'm i'm 49 so i can remember like you know if you took a road trip or something you were just you know unless you get to, got to a payphone. Yeah. You were you were left alone. <laughs> yes. That is kind of nice. Yeah, you're not you're not having your it, when I'm driving, yeah, my phone buzzing in my pocket. I'm like, just stop, just stop. You know what remember, I mean? So, and remember what job I do for a living. I mean, I minister at a church, and so I'm on call 24-7 like an ER doctor because of this stupid iPhone, because anybody can yes. reach out to me anytime. When I was driving, my wife and I were driving back from Nashville, and my phone's blowing up. That's a six-hour drive. I'm like, oh guys, come on, can you? Can you just, you know, hold the drama for another few hours so I can get home? You know, uh, so I, there are times I miss that. There are times I miss that. But anyway, yeah, you're right, Ashley. Any other notes you have on Pride of Frankenstein? No, but I am disturbed by how young Jackson is. I, I, I know, I know. <laughs> I, know. I recognized it as a phone, to be fair. I, I knew it was a phone, but and I did think that was really funny. I thought that was see, I didn't even read that as in 35 phones were new because they weren't. I think it was more just Pretorius as a weird, wacky kind of guy. He's and that's weird, that's how yeah. he sees it. He doesn't see a phone as any different as like the life-giving things he made for the bride. I mean, he's like, they're both electrical devices, you know. But uh yeah, yeah. I, I did recognize it as a phone. Okay. I, I wasn't confused by that, but I I I have never had a you landline. Watch a lot of old movies though to be yeah. fair for, for an 18 year old you watch a lot of old movies yeah yeah it's yeah. true and and like i said i've been watching twin peaks recently and pretty much everything in twin peaks is from 1935 so i mean they're all their technology oh so. come on i watched that when i lived in la come on um all right jackson <laughs> any notes you have uh yeah we, well we talked about the set plan but i just want to say like the lab set is much more complex in this movie from the first one. I mean, you remember the first one, it was pretty much yeah. just that that bed with the chains and like a Tesla coil and that was it. And this one, it's a lot, lot more complex. And that's something I like is that every Frankenstein movie kind of got more and more complex with the set design. By the time we got to the Hammer movies, I mean, it was like real weird. It was, it was like steampunk almost. Um, but I like that we start moving into a more complex thing with this one. Uh, and then a, a few quotes. First of all, I love dead, hate living is a fantastic line. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the mo Frankenstein's yeah. monster 
uh, should should have that and like that should be engraved engraved everywhere. You know, I I love Dead Hate Living. It's such a fantastic that that should be a punk rock anthem. Um, but uh, <laughs> it should be. You're right. I, I love it. And that's and then, something that um, Misfits should have covered a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about Return of the Living Dead and with that song, you know, whatever. That should have been yeah. on the Return of the Living Dead soundtrack. One of, I the loved best, it. one of the best songs to a soundtrack ever. Party Time is one of my favorites. So, with, as we discussed, a really dark message. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But, um, just yeah, so ignore I, that part and just rock out to it. Just, there just don't you go. listen to the lyrics. That's fine. Yeah. And did you and did you tell Ashley who we met at Joe Bob's drive-in? Uh, Wait, who did we meet? Oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> Return the Living Dead there. thing together. Who was in Return of the Living Dead? And it was at the last drive-in. Yeah, Linnea Quigley was there. We had no idea. We walked in. We we're like, oh, oh Linnea Quigley. Goodness. Okay. That's awesome. There you yeah, uh, yeah, we and walk also, into the. It, she had not been announced. We walk into the snack yeah. bar, and she's just sitting there at the table. I'm like, yes, let me quickly. Yeah. <laughs> did you was, get something signed? No, no I didn't get anything Becker signed. Did. But because my wife would divorce me if she if uh, I brought home what she was signing. Um, oh, was it a picture of her? There were a lot of pictures of her lying with her bare butt in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, I understand that. And yeah. Angela from Night of the Demons was also there. I was afraid to talk to Angela because I gave Night of the Demons a 6 out of 10. Um, but, oh, uh, yeah. I've not brought you to account for that yet. Yeah, go for it, Ashley. Tell him. How dare you? <laughs> well, all right, listen. I just posted a review to the Patreon today on the crazies. Hopefully that will redeem me a little bit for my hot take on Night of the Demons. And I still said I liked it. But, but well, that's, well, we won't get into that right now. I've I've gone back and forth with people on that. But um, yeah, I, I also another one of the notes I thought was funny, and I didn't even realize at the time how funny it was. I wrote universal message, and I was like, I did not even realize the irony of that. I was like, the universal message of understanding the monster and sympathy and wanting somebody like you. Universal message? That's a little on the nose. Cause that uh may but uh, made by universal get it um, yeah but, uh, I get the it. best jokes I are the ones it. you have to explain <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yeah. if you, but i also want to say just before we get to our ratings if you haven't seen the videos of, of first of all del toro talking about um bread frankenstein he was at the academy yeah. i think doing like a screening of bread frankenstein yeah. and then neil gaiman who people know from like Coraline and, and what's it called? Bad Omens, that new show with David Tennant in it. Um, uh-huh. But, uh, and the Sandman, but uh, he talked about Bride of Frankenstein and how dreamlike it is. And he, he has a really great uh, kind of monologue about that. But yeah, I'm, I'm ready to get onto the, the ratings and, and hopefully uh, Ashley, this will redeem me a little bit for my night of the demons. Well, <laughs> first things first, we have just a few questions and comments on oh, Facebook right. I want to run through if you don't mind. This was so Ian Urza posted the sequence between Frankenstein and the blind musician is the best combination of comedy and sadness I've ever seen in any movie. You may be right, Ian. It, it switches between both flawlessly. As a person who struggled to make friends and find people with similar interests as me for most of my life, it hits close to home. I enjoy intimate moments between two people in movies where you know that for a moment, everything might be okay, even though it won't work out well for The Bride of Frankenstein as one of the best such moments. Oh, man, man, oh, man. Ian, buddy, you got buddies now. And, and dude, you say stuff like that, you're in Maine. You're like a char- You're like one of my favorite characters out of a Stephen King novel, buddy. But you got... <laughs> you got you got friends now pal that's one of the good things about podcasts and all that kind of stuff so 
Pearl, uh, the Twisted Temptress, posted, I love her character in every way, from her own hair being stretched over a net cage to get the Nefertiti style of headdress to the odd choice of inspiration of bird movements for her iconic performance. And that's right. She mm-hmm. based it on on nasty like swans and geese in like Central Park. Yeah. Um, still don't understand why this movie was banned in a few countries. I don't either. And why her part had to be cut down in China. There we go again to be be accepted and shown. I would have loved to seen her character a lot more, but I'm hoping Scarlett Johansson will do the Bride of Frankenstein justice in the dark universe. Great subject. Can't wait to hear about my favorite wicked gal. Sounds like you and Pearl are on the same page there, Ashley. I think so. We usually are. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know about the Scarlett Johansson thing. I didn't either till she posted that. But we know, I guess it... I think it's all going to be dependent on how each movie does. I think the next one is the Wolfman with Ryan Gosling. So we'll see how that goes. But um, because I think if it bombs, then they'll probably just drop the dark universe again. But if it does well, they'll just keep going. I know that there is a Dracula film in development. We've said that, but I mean, we had Dracula Untold and the Tom Cruise Mummy, and neither of those were great, and we're still getting well, those. Well, that's true, so. but they kicked it back off with, but, but Blumhouse got involved with the Invisible right, Man Invisible to kick it back Man. off. Yeah, yeah that that made us that did not make me forget about the mummy though. I I will never forget. Yeah, but it's <laughs> no. now away from it's out of that. So we 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 will never get Russell Crowe as Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Thank God. From what I've seen from hotel camera footages on like TMZ, uh, <laughs> Russell Crowe would not have to act really to no. Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> Mister Hyde at least. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Greg Bench says in the film Gods and Monsters, nineteen ninety eight, starring Ian McKellen who is great in it. And Brendan Fraser, The Bride of Frankenstein is used as a backdrop, even giving the title of this film, even as a recreation of The Bride's Revelation scene. Just curious about any thoughts you three might have about the film Gods and Monsters, even winning an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Ashley, have you seen Gods and Monsters? I have not seen it, so I have no thoughts right now. But Greg, I will watch it and we will discuss this on Twitter. There you go. Yeah, it's... It's all Ian McKellen plays a retired uh, elderly James Whale reflecting back on his life and career. Mm-hmm. And so and Brandon Fraser kind of plays a guy who helps take care of his house and they get to know each other. And it's very, very good. Jackson, have you seen Gods and Monsters? I have not. I've seen parts of it, but I, I haven't seen it all the way through. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. This would be a good companion piece for this episode and mm-hmm. great cast. Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser, not exactly what you'd expect, but they, they seem to complement each other. They, they're very good with each other. Yeah. And and so it's but Ian McKellen is fantastic. Just amazing. And Brandon Fraser is good. Lolita Davidovich is in it as well. So Victor Rodriguez, Vicious Victor, just said, looking forward to this. And Nathan Bartabal said, very awesome in the top five horror movies, in my opinion. Lancaster is amazing, as is Karloff on return. It's the Pretorius character that really grows, I think. He's flamboyantly sinister and savors every scene. The way he plays off Dr. Frankenstein is wonderful. So there you go. I agree, Nathan. Um, All righty. So ratings and recommendations. I think this is probably redundant, but let's do it anyway. (laughs) Ashley, what is your rating and recommendation for Bride of Frankenstein? And by the way, if you're the person out there, you're listening. If you stole her Sony PlayStation with Bride of Frankenstein, you owe her one, a Sony PlayStation, two, an apology, and three, a new Blu-ray copy of Bride of Frankenstein. Go, Ashley. They do. Yes. Goodness. Okay. This is a 10 for me. 
I think that's pretty evident with the fact that I have it tattooed on my body. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> 10, I love everything about this. I put this movie on when I'm sad and it makes me happy. Just everything, just, uh, it's a masterpiece. All right. Jackson, what about you? Uh, it's a 10 out of 10 for me, too. There we go. Uh, one of the few I've ever given out on the podcast. Have I ever given a 10? Uh, maybe I gave it one to, like, Halloween or something. Creature from but, the Black um, Oh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's right. Um, definitely my my favorite right now of the, of the decade from from Universal. But um, yeah, it's just it is a little silly and campy in some parts. But that's just I think that makes it more entertaining. I mean, Frankenstein, the first one, is definitely a very cold movie. You definitely have to be huddled up, um, maybe with some eggnog or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it it is definitely more more cold and clinical. Whereas this one does feel a little bit more um, warm and um, and nostalgic. Uh, but it also has those horror aspects to it. So yeah, 10 out of 10, I think it's fantastic. I think it's perfect for what it is. Like I said, 75 minutes, uh, all killer, no filler. And uh, yeah, right now, my favorite of the Frankenstein franchise. Very good. Yep, it's, well, we're all in accord. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. Um, the original from 1931 and this one are must-owns. I have the Universal Blu-ray box set, which is expensive, but worth it. So, uh, love this movie. If you haven't seen it, if you're turned off by black and white, look, it's 75 minutes. It's shot beautifully. The performances are amazing. You have to see it. So, yes, absolutely. We will reveal what we're covering next. So stick around. But Ashley, thanks again for being on. Look forward to having you on again soon. We've been talking about that sometime here in the next two months or so. We may be talking a little uh, Michael Myers, perhaps. Yep. Very good. I'm going to be objective about it. <laughs> well, you may be a little surprised by 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 my opinion. We'll 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 see. We'll see. But right. where can people find you online, Ashley? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at barely Ashley, and I love connecting with horror fans. So just hit me up if you follow me. Maybe give me a little message that you found me on the podcast. I would love to follow you back. Fantastic. So. Uh, but Jackson, you're off to college to study film this week, correct? Yeah, that is true. Yes, so all week has been Bride of Frankenstein and packing a suitcase. So you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as $2.50 a month. Just go to patreon.com, look for Father and Son, watch horror. All proceeds go to help Jackson get through film school. I don't get a dime out of it. But Jackson, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. That's a mouthful every single time. I have to brace myself beforehand. Sometimes I even spell it out phonetically, but um, <laughs> um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter there. My letterbox and YouTube is linked from there. But yeah, I just posted a new video on the Patreon. I'm posting more to the Patreon than I do to all my own YouTube channel. I think the last thing I posted was like what like may or something like that yeah but um but uh yeah just posted a new review of the crazies so if you are offended by my review of of night of the demons please check out the crazies maybe i'll gain a few respect points in your eyes but uh yes that's where you can find online <laughs> you gotta rewatch night of the demons and up that score buddy but um i i'm on twitter and letterboxd as pastor matt r and you can find more on our website fatherandsonwatchhorror.com we also have a twitter account uh, at Father Son Horror and a closed Facebook group that you are welcome to join. Just let me know who you are. Next up, we got to give Jackson a little bit of time because not only is it his first week in college, but he's got to find 
a time and a place to podcast from, you know. Um, when will his uh, roommates in his dorm and stuff be out of there, or is there a better place? So he's got a uh, homework assignment to kind of scout around his campus to find the best place and time. When we do that, we've already scheduled a bunch of other podcasts uh, covering a franchise review, which we'll, we'll reach out to everybody and try to coordinate that. Even if we have to record out of sequence, that's fine. But next up, we plan on covering both Candyman from 1992 and Nia DaCosta's forthcoming Candyman, which drops in about a week after this episode drops. So tune back in for that. I know you're going to see it that opening weekend, no matter what your homework is, right, buddy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a must. There, there are a few movies. I've got a few opening uh, opening weekend. There's, of course, Wes Anderson's French Dispatch, but let's not talk about that right now. This is a horror podcast after all. But Last Night in Soho, that's a horror movie. Yep. Halloween Kills and Candyman. Those are the must-see opening weekend ones. So that, that'll be a really fun episode. I'm hoping right. my theaters are not shut down by then. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I know. They better not go back here, down the lockdown. Yeah, and... In Arkansas, it's very possible at the moment. So I, I've just uh, been waiting and waiting. And I'm like, if they ruin this for me. Ugh. Oh, if they have to put off Candyman and Halloween Kills for another year. I'm going to be so mad. I know. You, you and me both, Ashley. Uh, you and me both. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Ashley. Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye and remember to look out for the newest entry in the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids franchise. Dr. Frankenstein, I Grew the Queen. <laughs> i'm looking forward to that one. Oh, okay oh man well guys thanks for listening remember the family that watches horror together slays together see you next time once again i want to thank the great people over on patreon dave becker greg bench ryan bratton dan george ian urza kevin corpy james mcfeeters ashley pinkard greg amortis and pearl from land of the creeps raul rivera Joel Robertson, Brian Scott, Amy Swan, and Trey Whetstone. Thank you all so much. You make this podcast possible. Lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye.